Good morning, City Life family. My name is Cliff, and I'm one of the directors here at City Light. I get the joy to love and lead our city groups here out west. We've been here since April of this year, my family and I, and the last time we came here, um, when it was snowing, it was negative 22 degrees in December, and uh, we moved from sunny old Florida and came here, so that must mean something, right? And so my wife, her name is Crystal. I've known her, believe it or not, since the sixth grade, and we have two young kids. They're awesome. My daughter, Naomi, she is three years going on 30. She is a little diva. And my son, Judah, he's turning two in January. We call him our little lion. And we cannot begin to express how much joy we have of being a part of a church that not only loves us, but whose mission is to multiply disciples and churches. And so it's a great privilege to be able to herald God's word to us this morning. And so if you have your Bible or for our next generation folks, your Bible app, open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 12. That will be our text for today. And today I'd like to preach a message called Guilty as Charged, a King Confronted. City Light, have you ever been confronted or called out in some way? I see some heads nodding. That's good. About 13 years ago, I was confronted in a major, major way. After receiving multiple Division I scholarship offers in high school as a junior, my athletic career came to an end. Believe it or not, after a multitude of tests, I was diagnosed with the onset of a heart disease called cardiomyopathy. And so I lost all of my scholarships and I was crushed. So hearing that news, I end up going to a local school. My wife and I are both born from Miami, Florida, so we go about four hours away to UCF. Go Knights, that's right, former national champs. And uh, I end up going there, and in my second year, I end up losing the academic scholarship that I had. So as a 20-year-old kid with no purpose and directions, still crushed two years later, what do I do? Well, the next year, excuse me, the next week, I end up walking into UCF sporting facilities and proceed to walk on the football team. Yep, I did that. And so in order for that to happen, I lie on my physicals and all my preliminary testings. I lie to the coaching staff. I lie to all the athletic trainers. And as far as they know, I was healthy and good to go. And so fast forward that year, that spring, I start playing football again. And guess what? I'm doing really, really well. I'm fighting and competing for a starting job on the football team. The head coach, Coach George O'Leary, says, Cliff, I think we're going to put you on a full scholarship. That means everything's paid for. Life is good. Grades get better. I am excited. But then it happens. My lovely parents find out that I've been playing football. And so guess what my loving parents do? They confront me. They confront me. Church, I had lied. I was in the wrong. I had covered up my past and thought I was good to go. But my mother and my, my father, my parents who loved me so much, they would not allow me to continue walking down that path. And so they confront me, and I was guilty as charged. And so, City Light, I share that story to us today because we see a similar case in our text today in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We see the great King David, right? The great King David who seems like he couldn't do any wrong. We see this King David being confronted. David has coveted. He's committed adultery. He's committed murder. And 
attempting to hide it and thinking that his past too was in the past. It all gets brought to light in this chapter, and David has to respond to confrontation as well. City Light, hear me so closely on this. Not many of us have sinned the way that David sinned. Not many of us have violated God's standard the way that David has. But every single one of us who's sitting in this room today has sinned. And sin always takes us farther than we want to go. And so the question for us this morning, the question I want to pose to us is not do we sin, but rather what do we do when we sin? What do we do when others around us sin? I would say that the answer to that question is a matter of life and death. And so my prayer, my hope for all of us here today, myself included, is that we would see the grace of God in this text. I want to remind you and tell you that today's text is a heavy text. It's fair warning, but it is a marvelous text. And the grace of God in this text is that there is a remedy for this thing called sin. One remedy, but a remedy nonetheless. And that remedy is for us to repent and turn to a gracious and merciful God. Amen? And so if you're taking notes today, our big picture, the main framework that we'll be working from is this. Gracious confrontation leads to godly restoration. Gracious confrontation leads to godly restoration. And there are three imperatives that I believe God is calling us to in this text. The first one comes within verses 1 through 7a. We are going to see that we must, number one, Receive a rebuke as a gift from God. So a brief recap, or cliff notes, no pun intended. In chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, David has sinned in some horrendous ways. It starts off with David's idleness and not going to war when he should have, then led into lust, which led into adultery, and then the impregnating of Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is this beautiful woman who happens to be married to one of David's mighty men and soldiers named Uriah. So after, that, after several attempts to cover up her pregnancy and the adultery, David has her husband, Uriah, killed by placing him in the front of enemy lines. He did that. And what's interesting, City Light, is that in all of chapter 11, we don't hear God mentioned at all until the very last sentence of chapter 11 in verse 27 where we read this, quote, The thing David had done displeased the Lord, end quote. So David might have thought he was in the clear, but in the last sentence of this chapter, we see that God begs to differ. And so with that in mind, let's go into the beginning of our text, the very first sentence, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12, and let's read that together. Verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Seven words. And City Light, I'm so grateful for those seven words. They are extremely, extremely powerful. You know, when we've sinned and turned away from God to pursue our own evil desires, do you want to know what the most dreadful thing that can happen? The most dreadful thing that can happen. It's God leaving us alone. It's God saying, Cliff, I'm fine with you. Stay stuck in your sins. Stay in this posture of awareness for me, if that's even a word. City Light, we'll see here shortly that God sending Nathan to David is a huge sign and act of grace. Do you know what we have without God sending Nathan to David? We have a hopeless story of this great king, maybe, maybe not, David, being stuck in and living in his sin. 
What's interesting is that the word sinned in chapter 11 is used 12 times. There's a lot of activity going on with, again, like God appearing at the being inside. There's, it's used 12 times, and if you don't believe me, there's a slide coming up here that you can look at. I'm not going to read all of these, but here are some of the sins we see in chapter 11. In verse 1, we see that David sends Joab, his servant, to fight the battle with the Ammonites. Then later, David sends to inquire about Bathsheba. Then David sends for Bathsheba and ends up sleeping with her. Then Bathsheba sends for David and tells her him that she's pregnant. Then Joab sends Uriah to David. And at the very bottom here, skipping some things, in verse 27, we see that David sends for Bathsheba in the very end to live with him and ultimately marries her. But now, what do we see, right? All that's happening, God's not in the picture. But now in verse 1 of chapter 12, what do we see? We see that God sends. And God sends Nathan to David, and he sends this prophet David with a, Nathan with a story, but not just any story, church. I like to call it a self-condemning Judge Judy parable story. Let's reread the first four verses of chapter 12 and read this story. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie within his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so City Light, we see four characters in this story. We see a rich man, his guest, and a poor man and his ewe lamb. And if you're like me and didn't know what a ewe lamb was, it's okay, okay? A ewe lamb is a young female sheep. And so the rich man takes this guest into his home where he shows him some good old Nebraska nice southern hospitality. Y'all know how to treat a brother out here. And so when he did so, he violated God's law because he stole the lamb and used that to prepare for the meal instead of his own. And so David, we see him, he is livid. He is mad. He is hot. He is enraged. And he interrupts David to cast judgment on the rich man in the story because that's kind of what kings do, right? They make judgment calls. They're the boss. And so in his emotion, he says two things. One, this man deserves death. Then secondly, he says, this man shall pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And what's interesting here, church, is that David is actually 100% right. He's a little emotional in the first response, but he's right because in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, the law, God declares in his law that if a man steals a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay four sheep for the one sheep. And so here we see that David is 100% right, but he's hypocritically blinded by his own passion. Why do you say that, Cliff? Well, I'd like to tell you. Well, I say that because David doesn't see himself in the story. Because of David's sin, he has diluted visibility. And if I'm, if I'm honest, David is definitely still to blame, but I can relate. I mean, don't we do the same thing? Don't we easily see the wrongdoing of other people? rather than ourselves? I mean, a wise person once, once told me that it's often those with the dirtiest hands that are quick to point the fingers. 
And so when David condemned the rich man's sin in verse 6, he actually condemns himself. That's why Nathan responds and says, dude, you are the man. In the same way that the rich man stole and took the poor man's sheep, David, being a rich and powerful man, stole and took Uriah's wife. Gracious confrontation leads to godly restoration. And right here in this process, we see this confrontation leading to a rebuke. Question for you today. When you hear the word rebuke, do you hear it in a negative connotation or in a positive connotation? Do you hear it in a negative light or in a positive light? Because believe it or not, in the context of Scripture, a rebuke is a good thing. It's a godly thing. And I dare say it is a gift. By definition, rebuke means this, to express sharp disapproval or criticism of someone because of their behavior or actions. So ultimately, a rebuke is supposed to be something that's used in love to get somebody, when they're off the wrong track, to get them right back on track and in obedience with God. And so we see here that God sending Nathan to David is so that he would confront him and rebuke him of his sins with the intention of David getting back on right track and coming to his right senses and right mind. A rebuke is a gift, church. Do you see it? City Light, in the same way that God sent Nathan to confront and rebuke David, he sends his Holy Spirit and his saints to confront us and rebuke us of our sins. The Holy Spirit guides us. The Holy Spirit leads us. He counsels us and he convicts every Christian of our sins. God's also given us one another. That is, the church to do the same. And we all, each and every one of us here today, whether if you're a student in college, an exhausted parent with a hectic schedule, an empty nester on the way to retirement, a retired and tired folks, I know y'all are out here too, a bachelor or a bachelorette, each and every one of us needs to listen and learn to listen to the Holy Spirit that indwells in us. And the people, the Nathans, or for my females out there, the Natalies that God places in our life to help us to see the sin that we cannot see. Let me tell you something. God loves his people, church. God loves you. God is the one who always initiates. God is the one who pursues. God is relentless, is determined, and never fails at accomplishing his plans. God is the great I am. And we love him because he first loved us. And so, church, I want you to know that here in this text, we see that God's sending is for our good. City Light, who is your BFF in the Lord? Your ride or die? Your brother from another mother, but you got the same father in God. That dear friend in your life. Do you not recognize that God has put him or her in your life as a gift to speak into your life? Do you love one another enough to confront one another in love if they're walking down the wrong path? Proverbs 27 and verses 5 through 6 says it this way. Better an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds, that's things that hurt us, right? Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. 
In other words, speaking tough truths in love, even in the form of a rebuke, even if it hurts us or our feelings initially, is not a bad thing. It's a gift. It's a needed thing for us as Christians if we want to walk with and glorify God. See, like, can I be honest with you? Can I keep it, I'd like to say, 100 with you? Keep it, be transparent and just real. Like, I know what it's like to struggle and sin. I know what it's like to be in the dark. And I'm not just talking about my football story. I'm talking about as a young believer being sexually active and not open about it and struggling over and over and over again and feeling like there was no hope. I know what it's like to be struggling with pornography and not being open about that either up until a few years ago where I finally found freedom. Or as a married man in my first two years of marriage, feeling like, hey, I got it all together. We're all good. We went on our honeymoon to Hawaii. Yeah, we really did that. And it was awesome. But I was not leading well as a husband in the home. Can you not relate? Have you ever been in a situation like that? If I'm being honest, I know for a fact, and I know some of you may sit in your seat a little bit when I say this, there's some of us here right now sitting in our seats, and we're sitting in our sin. And it may be two weeks, or it may be a few years. There's reconciliation needs to happen with family members. There's challenges in play. There's darkness behind computer screens. There's malice going on, and God's calling us to repent. I'd ask you again, and I'd share this again. Again, the question for us today is not, do we sin? The question is rather, what do we do when we sin? As believers of Christ, we have a choice. We can deny it or we can deal with it. And that leads us to our second imperative for this morning. We've seen that we must receive a rebuke as a gift from God. Secondly, we must, number two, realize that repentance is a grace of God. Church, it's inevitable that we will sin, and at times our sin can be severe, but now demonstrates what we're called to do when we sin. David repents. Read verses 7b through 12 with me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave them to the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do the thing before all Israel and before the sun. Church, after Nathan confronts and rebuked David, I want us to see something. It's so important that we see something, and that something is God's heart. God is for his people and full of grace and truth. He gives David some kind reminders before announcing this judgment on him. 
See the grace of God in this text. Verses 7 and 8. God reminds David that, number one, he's given him position. There should be a slide coming up for that as well. Number two, protection. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Then he says, I've given you possession, saying in verse 8, I gave your master's house to you. And then I said, saying in verse 8, also, I gave you power. I gave you control over the house of Israel and Judah. And then God, being full of grace, says, even if you were to ask for more, David, I would still have more generosity to give. Church, God calls out the senselessness in David's sin, saying, David, you have it all, and you think you need more? It's as if God is saying to David, you have all you need. You're a wealthy man. You have plenty of resources and even graduated from Harvard, but you still feel the need to go and get a degree from Wayne State? It made no sense. This synthesis led to a rhetorical question from David in verse 9. I'm glad you guys are with me. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And as a result, David's entire family faces judgment. It gets monstrously horrific. I'm talking about first 48 horrific. We see in the very next chapter that one of David's sons rapes his own daughter. Later on, one of his other sons ends up killing the son who raped his daughter. And then later on, one of his sons ends up sleeping with one of David's wives. It's crazy. Ultimately, we find out in Scripture that all of David's four sons experience premature death. Traditional Jewish and Christian theologians' interpretation of this passage has correlated the death of David's four sons to be the fourfold consequences of the ewe lamb in David's story. Do you remember when David was being told that story from Nathan and he interjects and says, that rich man should pay four sheep for the one sheep? This is David's fourfold consequence. That's heavy. And so David pronounced judgment against the rich man and Nathan's story. And in keeping with the principle of the penalty, the Lord performs a similar judgment on him, except what David did in secret, God does and brings before light before all Israel. City Light, hear me on this. This serves as a stark warning for us. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he or she sows, the one who sows from the flesh, from that very flesh, reaps corruption. Do you see the corruption in David's life? Do you see or do you know the corruption that may happen in your life? I mean, I know I've seen corruption in my life because of sin. And so after hearing all of this from the Lord, David can't hide or cover up his sin. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't pick up his hand and say, here, look at my spiritual resume. Look at all the things I've done. He doesn't rationalize or explain away his sin. He doesn't try to bargain with God. He doesn't do as a lot of us do, myself included, saying, hey, man, God, I promise I'll do better next time. He doesn't do any of those things. What he does is the only thing he can do is he appeals to God on account of God's grace. He's laid bare before his friend Nathan and ultimately God and displays immense humility and remorse. And in verse 13, David says this to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David confesses and repents. And although 
he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, and even the soldiers he sent that ended up dying as well, he addresses the offense of primary and first importance, saying that I have sinned against the Lord. David recognized had he not sinned against the Lord and his word, those people, Uriah, Bathsheba, and so forth, may not have been murdered or abused, and he understood that. And we see the depth of David's sorrow and his confession and his cry to the Lord in Psalm 51. Church, Psalm 51 might as well be grafted in with 2 Samuel chapter 12 because David laments, he cries out to God, he confesses his sin. And I'm going to read just three verses from that psalm. In verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. In verse 4, he says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your own words and blameless in your judgment. And in verse 10, hear this, he says, Create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David's response was to cry out to God on the mercy of God in accordance to his faithfulness, to confess that of first importance that he'd sinned against the God of the universe and to ask that God recreate in him a new heart and bring him back to himself. And City Light, the same is true for us, for all of us who follow Jesus. We too are called to confess and repent. We too are called to an entire life, believe it or not, as believers, an entire life of repentance. There's a pastor by the name of Tony Evans. He, de- he defines repentance this way. He says, repentance is an internal resolve and a determination to turn away from your sin. City like God initiates repentance, and repentance involves four elements. This could be very helpful for you. One, repentance involves a conviction about sin or of sin, the right belief about our sin. Two, it involves an acknowledgement of sin. Thirdly, it involves a confession of sin. And this is very important. I did not know this back in the day, but confession is not repentance. Confession is part of repentance, but it's not repentance. When I go to my wife and say, hey, I I missed the ball, she's like, amen, but what are you going to do about it? You know what I'm saying? Like, what's going to happen? All right? You know, so... True repentance is an, a, a conviction of sin, an acknowledgement of sin, a confession of sin that leads us to a place where we have sorrow, not the type of sorrow that we just stay in the dumps. The Bible calls that worldly sorrow, but a type of sorrow that leads us to repent and turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus. Amen? Yeah. Amen. So going back to my story that I shared with you all earlier about my parents and football, man, I love my parents. I'm so grateful they confront me. I talk to them almost every day. I was at a conference with Pastor Phil and some other guys in Chicago, and I got a random phone call from my dad around like maybe 9, 10 o'clock in the morning, and he called me, and he just said, hey, man, I just want to call you. That's how my dad talks. He's like, I just want to call you, man, and tell you that I love you. You know, 59 years old, I'm 31 years old, and he just called me to tell me that those are my parents, and they confronted me on my sin, and I'm so grateful for that. But the story continues. Y'all probably thinking I got kicked off the team, right? I didn't. UCF blessed me with a second and third medical opinion. They ran all those tests over again. And guess what happened? They said, dude, you ain't got no heart disease. You just got a big heart. God is good, literally. 
Amen. Thanks. God was gracious to heal me, church. And I played the whole year. The next year, I had so many great experiences playing on ESPN. UCF won their first conference championship. Yeah, they were good back then, too. And it was awesome. But then things take a big turn. The next year, my roommate and my teammate, during spring workouts, he collapses doing workouts, and he dies later that afternoon. And um, I just find myself again being confronted, you know, um, just being confronted with this time with death. And uh, for, for as long as I can remember, I always had this intellectual belief in God. I even believed in Jesus. You know, I would go to church occasionally and even pray. And um, I had some great matriarchs in my family on my mom's side who really showed me that Jesus may be real. But I never had that intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. And I can't tell you all the details of the story. I'd love to tell you that right now, but I went long last sermon. I can't do it again. So what I could tell you is this, is that Eric, seeing Eric, my teammate, seeing his physical death, it led me to spiritual life. Seeing his death led me to repent of my unbelief and realize that tomorrow's not promised and to turn in belief and surrender my life wholeheartedly to Jesus. See, like, God healed my physical heart from a heart disease, but what I'm most grateful for is him enabling me to see him for who he truly is and get on my knees and repent. See, like, I don't know where you stand in your relationship with God, nor the sins or the areas that you need to repent of in your life. Maybe. Maybe you're a husband or wife, and you're harsh with your spouse week in and week out. That's malice. Maybe you're hiding in your own personal success and glamour in your position at work or the position that you carry, not realizing that they too will fade. That's pride and idolatry. Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent struggling to find your contentment and joy at times because you're not finding your security in the Lord. Maybe you're in a relationship not yet married or you got a friends with benefits, that type of relationship, and you're still choosing to live and sleep together. That's sexual immorality. Maybe you're a little... Wait, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, and I've been saying you're going to live a healthier life and eat better, and it's been years, but no change. That's greed and gluttony. Maybe you're, as a parent, you're viewing the youth and kids ministry as the primary place to disciple your kids, not realizing that God gave you the Holy Spirit as well, and you are the primary disciple maker in your home. Maybe you're struggling with this roller coaster ride with pornography, and I keep bringing that because it's preying on our church, and you feel like it's hopeless. Maybe you struggle with the busyness of life prioritizing things like Husker football games, social outings, and the like, instead of prioritizing your relationship with God first. Maybe, just maybe, you love the fellowship of the church, the coffee and the donuts, but not the missional part of making disciples and sacrificially serving others. Maybe, just maybe. Whatever your struggle or struggles, whatever areas of life you have yet to overcome, I want to let you know that there is hope in the one who overcame. And that hope is in God through Jesus Christ, which leads us to our last imperative that, number three, we must rely and trust Jesus to restore us to God. Read with me the last two verses of our text today, 13 and 14. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, by this deed... You, because you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you 
shall die. See, like the law tells us what David deserved, death. But Deuteronomy tells us that as well. And but grace shows us what David received, forgiveness and removal of the death sentence. Repentance and faith in Jesus does reconcile us to God, eliminating the eternal consequences of being separated from God. And this is the good news, the gospel, right? We become co-heirs with Christ. We become born again. We get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God himself living in us. We get new affections for Jesus. We can live life with purpose, and we don't come to Jesus because we want a better life. We come to Jesus because he is better than life. That is the good news. But it does not necessarily remove earthly consequences. For David, in this circumstance, his son would die, and it's as if the child would die in David's place. Hear me closely on this. David sins and tries to cover up his unrighteousness, which results in the death of his son. But God's son, Jesus, dies for our sin and covers us up with his righteousness. In verse 13, David, this is said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. And this is scandalously good news, church. The Lord gave forgiveness and he gave mercy. The law declared that all adulterers and murderers must die, but yet the Lord said to David, you're not going to die. Why is that? It's because of God's compassion. It's because of God's grace. It's because of God's love and God's faithfulness to forgive us of our sins. And so, church, in the past, we've seen David as what? This great king, right? A man after God's own heart. But in this text today, what do we see him as? We see him as a great sinner in need of a greater Savior. And this news, hear me on this, is true for us, City Light. Jesus didn't die because of what we did to one another. Jesus had to die because of what we did to God. Do we, do you really grasp what God through Jesus had to do for you, for me, for us, to free us and pay for our sin? In this text, we need to clearly see that we too are that man. We too are guilty as charged. We too have been lavished with God's love. And yet we too, like David, continually miss the mark of God's holy and perfect ways. If you can't say amen, say ouch. In this passage, David is not referred to as king, as anointed, or any other position of status and power, but as a mere man. And as a mere man, he sinned just like every other man except the true man, the God-man, Jesus the Christ. Just as David needed forgiveness, we too need forgiveness. That comes only through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Church, today we see that it is the story of the slaughter of the lamb which exposed the immensity of David's sin. And so it is with us. It is the story of the slaughter of the lamb of God which exposes the immensity of our sins. If your heart is heavy right now, it should be. He who is forgiven little loves little. Church, we've been forgiven of much, so much, and we don't deserve it. That much forgiveness, that grace, that scandalousness, knowing that we are guilty, it should lead us to do what? Just like David, get on our knees. If my knee wasn't messed up right now, I'd get on and say, thank you, God, for forgiving me for my sins. If you are an unbeliever today and you have yet to come to faith in Jesus, do you see yourself in this story? 
Repentance for you today means to believe in the gospel. And the gospel is this, if you've never heard it, or if you have heard it, it's good to hear it again, that according to the scriptures, you, me, and every living human being walking this planet has sinned and and is separated from God because of our sin. And sin is any thought, word, or action that is contrary to the nature of God himself. And God, in his unconditional love, while we were still yet sinners, died for our, on our behalf and sent Jesus to do that for us. Jesus lived the perfect life that we can never live. Jesus died the death that we can never die, innocent. And he raised to life supernaturally on the third day, defeating Satan, sin, and death. Repentance for you means believing in this Jesus. Understand that you can't save yourself and come into Jesus baggage and all saying, hey, I know you're the only way to save me and placing your faith and trust and surrendering to him. If you believe that message today, I want to let you know that you are saved. The only prerequisite for faith is to repent and believe. To come to faith in Jesus, to have a right relationship with him, you don't have to pray a prayer. No, that's common, but that's not biblical. It's not to pray a prayer. It's not to, you have to speak in tongues to be saved. It's not be baptized to be saved. It is to repent and believe. If you're a Christian today and you are a follower of Christ, I want you to know something, and you may have never ever looked at it or heard it this way before, but I want you to hear it today. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Theologian John Frame explains it this way. Repentance, too, is the work of God in us. It's the opposite side of faith. Faith is turning to Christ. Repentance is turning away from sin. You can't have one without the other. And as a gospel-centered church, we often talk about faith being a gift of grace, right? Today, I want to also remind you that repentance, too, is a gift of grace. Do you still see yourself in the story? You were guilty as charged. I was guilty as charged. But God, being rich in mercy, has granted us repentance by enabling us to surrender in faith to Jesus. And because of that, we are forever forgiven. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. We have right relationship with him. The Father says, I cannot, I know my sheep by name, and no one can snatch them from the Father's hand. That is grace. That is the gospel. That's our motivation. Christ's love compels us. And as believers, we're called to a life of faith, but we're also called to a life of repentance. My plea and prayer for us today is that we might turn to the God of grace and confess and repent. City Light, would you receive a rebuke as a gift from God? Would you realize that repentance is a grace of God? And would you rely and trust Jesus to restore you to God? That's our life call. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, you are so good. God, I can feel the Holy Spirit in this place, God, crying out on our behalf, even if we don't know how to pray. God, I'm so thankful for you, that you came into my life and you came to many lives in this place today and brought dead people to life with a new hope and new affections and new desires for you, God. But it's not a one-time thing. It's a lifetime thing, God. We are justified in faith, meaning that we're made right with you, God. But there's this process called sanctification where you're continually making us look more and more like Jesus, God. Would you help us to see that 
in our life today. Would you help us to see what our next step is to confess not only to you, God, we need to come to you personally, but to confess to one another, God, so that we might walk in community with you. God, we love you so much. You are so faithful. You are such a good God, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.